Well, hello, and welcome to uh, our first ever Eastlake Online. Uh, we're so glad that you're tuning in and, and watching this thing. Uh, we, uh, it is 10 a.m. We are filming this live. We don't do that pre-recorded mess. Uh, we want the challenge of being able to potentially say something that we don't mean and not have the ability to kind of retract it. So uh, this is live. It's 10 o'clock. I'm here at the Uptown Theater. Um, and uh, I've, we invited a couple of uh, our team captains to be here. So there's about 249 of us in the room right now. And uh, we're, we're excited to be doing church uh, with you watching this. And uh, pro- I'm sure you're at home and, and making that thing happen. I, I wrote this message this week, um, unsure the, uh, of what the status was. We may ha- had to make the call uh, later in the week. So appreciate your flexibility on that. Um, but it is always hard. It's, it, I'm writing something. I'm like, I don't even know if people are going to you know, see this. Are we going to even do anything this week? And uh, it changes I, I, the, the flow of how you do things in terms of preparing for a video versus preparing live. And uh, so we're trying to kind of help mix it with a few people in here. But, um, you know, the flow is different. Jokes are different. Uh, we have like an applause meter in the back, but I don't even know if it's going to work uh, for these people here. So uh, it's, it's definitely uh, up and down. So um, but thanks for tuning in. Um, I have been assured by Andrew and the team that the shot is only from about here up. So um, I'm wearing sweatpants and flip-flops, everybody. I've never been more comfortable uh, at teaching at Eastlake uh, before. Uh, we're going to continue to post. Uh, we don't know how long this is going to take place. So we're going to continue to do this in this format for the next couple of weeks for the foreseeable future. Um, you'll notice a couple of things are different. Um, we did the intro video, but then went right into teaching. There's no uh, worship music. Uh, there's no funny clips or anything like that. Um, that's just out of necessity for us of, of what we need to do. If, if worship's your thing and you're like, you really, really missed worship, then here's what I would recommend for you. Um, like turn the TV off at some point, uh, get out your phone, turn on some Spotify, find a good worship playlist and uh, keep those uh, yoga pants on that you've been wearing all week long anyways. And uh, ladies, you can do this too. Uh, and go ahead and just listen to worship music on your own and uh, like prior to this video or whatever, build it up to this and then, and then watch it. There's lots of different ways. We're gonna continue to resource you with uh, music playlists, worship playlists, um, things throughout the week to try and make content uh, still applicable and, and accessible for you so that you can feel included at Eastlake, even though you can't be here in, in the building. Um, events like this uh, remind us of the value of coming together. We miss it when we're not there, hopefully. You know, I think this first week, everybody's like, oh, it's kind of interesting and fun that we're trying this online. But I think by like week two, three, four, 17, you're going to be like, oh man, I miss gathering together. I miss the, being in the presence uh, of one another. But it's also a really healthy reminder that your physical presence within the walls, the four walls of this building do not constitute whether you're in or out uh, at Eastlake or the church in general. That's never been true. The walls have never been intended to be like, here's where the church is and here's where it's not. Uh, in fact, due to the age of this building and the materials that they were okay with using during its construction, I'm not confident that Corona is the most dangerous exposure you might have being a part of this thing, but we do miss you for those of you watching online. Hopefully we can be together again soon. Not only do we have uh, resources going out, if you'll go to our main website, we've also posted some, some kids videos to kind of keep your kids entertained. So after this, or um, maybe later this week, because I mean, I don't know if you have time this week, you probably will to sit down with your kids and watch through some kids' videos uh, as well um, to kind of keep the training going or teaching going for them too. So that's, that's successful there. Um, we understand uh, the balance. We're all dealing with this right now. The balance between uh, what is worth the risk of going and doing and then what is the responsible thing to do. Um, we understand that... Um, 
we're making decisions right now between like quality of life and uh, in, like I, I want to be able to go do things, but I also want to be smart about how I do this. So the question that we're all asking ourselves is like, what's the wise thing for me to do? Is it wise for me to go stock up um, uh, there? Is it wise for me to, to, to fill the pantry? If you haven't made that decision yet, then the answer is uh, clearly no, because there's nothing there. So, um, the, but that's the decision. That's like the lens at which we're all kind of like dealing with some things at this point. And I want you to know it. He's like, we're, we're asking that exact same question. Um, and that's the result of why we decided. Um, to, I know there's a governor mandate of, of not over 250. And we could have kind of been like, well, you know, we're not really over 250 or limited or done something stuff like that. But we're following the spirit of the law, which is essentially trying to be not fearful. We're not being fearful. We're being responsible in this way. Um, so that's the, the basis of this decision. And I actually think that that kind of thought segues really nicely into kind of what we've been dealing with as part of this series. Like, what do we do uh, in light of the circumstances that we find ourselves in? What is the wise thing for me to do processing forward? We've been in a series on the Bible, and I think the Bible is incredibly important. I really, really enjoy the Bible. I, uh, I love the history of the Bible. I love the evergreen nature of its wisdom. I love its various facets and how the stories um, tend to shift, like part of its history, part of its law, part of its poetry, part of its gospel teaching stuff, part of its parables, uh, part of its like instructions and, and all that kind of stuff. I think that that sort of variety reflects actual real life. Um, I think that your quality of life is benefited by investing time in this thing called the Bible. And, and, and whether you're like religious or not religious, I think your life gets better as a result of time spent within this. I think it's a worthwhile endeavor, as hard as it sometimes can be to invest time into this uh, thing, or as hard it can seem. And I get it. I'm a pastor. Like, what else am I supposed to say? I understand that. But we wanted to do a teaching series, a four-part teaching series on the Bible because of this incredible importance. And we're on week four of this. It's called Take and Eat. Um, There is a website you can go to uh, after, not right now because you're watching this, but um, later if you want to go and catch up on this series, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. All three parts of this thing are leading up to but there are, the, the essential idea is if I can be an influence on you to take the Bible more seriously and not more serious, and I don't mean that in like a thou shall not wear spaghetti straps kind of seriousness, I, something more tangible and meaningful than that. I mean in a way that influences you in the way that you view life. If I, in whatever platform I can do that, whether it's online or in person or whatever, I want to do that. I, I, I think it's that important. And so uh, the subtext of the series has been, here's a couple of things to keep in mind when reading your Bible. Like, um, in the same way that you would have instructions or uh, like a readme document before you install something on your computer, here's what you're, you're doing or whatever. This is the readme document for the Bible, and it's not comprehensive. It doesn't include everything. It's just some, here, here's a few thoughts from somebody who spends a lot of time in this um, and it, this, these kind of things have helped me as I understand the Bible, and perhaps they could help you as well. And the first uh, thought from week one was simply that this thing is ancient, it's really old, it spans, it, it covers a time period of thousands of thousands of years, and it, it, it ends like 2,000 years prior to kind of where we're at right now. This is, this is old stuff that we're talking about here, and so it's ancient, it's ambiguous in parts, like there's parts that are, are unclear. We, we in, in, in religions especially, crave black and white clarity, and a lot of times there's like, don't do this, but then they find themselves doing it, or um, do this, and then they don't. And, 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 and uh, there's some ambiguity in, in what this exactly means. There's room for interpretation. And not only that is, we said that this thing is also diverse. It's got a diversity of authors, a diversity of time frames, a diversity of circumstances at which the people found themselves in. Two different covenants in, in terms of Old Testament covenant and New Testament covenant. 
We're dealing with all kinds of diverse things in here, and you've got to keep that in mind when you read it, because Genesis reads a lot differently than another book in the Old Testament, and especially a a book in the New Testament. All of these books read differently. You need to know that going into it. We also said in part two, week two, was that this thing is historically biased, um, meaning they're speaking uh, about things that are happening in their current culture and current time frame. Um, A lot of the Old Testament was written uh, because they're trying to make sense of exile. Um, they had experienced exile. The northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians in the north. The southern kingdom falls to the Babylonians. Many of them are driven into exile. And they're trying to answer the question, what do we do now? Like, we, we feel like we've been a people of promise, and now everything that was promised to us feels like it's fallen through. How do we make sense of this? And so a lot of what you see, uh, trying to explain why we went into exile, and, and then as well, once they got sent home out of exile and they're trying to rebuild their nation, what do we do to avoid this in the future? And is God still involved in this thing at all? Those are the questions that are going on in, in that scenario. And if you're not aware of the historical bias going on, then, then some of that's not going to make any sense to you. And then and lastly, um, it contains a picture of people's social imaginaries at that time. And we said last week, social imaginaries, how I imagine things to work. This is how I think they work. I think uh, that a car operates a certain way. Now, as information comes in, I realize there's more to it. There's always more complexity than, than what we think. But at some point, we all operate and we function in life. I, I function uh, in, in the way that I think that when I go to the grocery store after church today, there's going to be cantaloupes in the produce bin because there's always been cantaloupes in the produce bin, except yesterday when I went and there's nothing there, right? Um, functionally, I have an imaginary of how this works. I think little elves come and they drop them off every night after I, I go home. Um, but really, like there's a supply chain system and all of that's in jeopardy right now. And so once I get that information and we realize, oh my gosh, like I can't just always go to the store and it's always going to be there. We are, we are right now experiencing a refreshing of our social imagination about how even our grocery shopping works. So anyways, that's taking place. These people are working with the social imaginary. This is how they thought it works. They pictured a God as a jealous God, as a warring God, because that's the God system that they came out of. Like, of course, it's going to reflect in the writings. That's how they thought it worked, right? So anyways, and finally, we get to today. So another thing to think about, and by far not the last thing or the final thing, or this is all you ever need to know about it. I would never claim to have that kind of authority or that kind of wisdom in that way. But just another thing to think about as you kind of proceed um, to kind of get engaged in your Bible and read it. And, and this is, this is a, strictly speaking, New Testament sort of material. But the New Testament writers will do just about anything to speak highly of Jesus. Uh, and, and you need to know that because uh, in the same way that I, I feel like the New Testament church, which I hopefully is what we're a part of, we will do just about anything. Paul says, I'll become all things to all people in order to save a few or whatever. We will do just about anything to leverage our platform to speak highly of Jesus. And the reason that we feel comfortable doing that as a church, because we said from the very beginning, we want to be a church where people don't typically like church. I want to change your perception of who Jesus was and what the church could look like and what it means to follow Jesus in 2020. We don't do that in isolation to scripture. I think we do that out of obedience to scripture because that's what I see a lot of the New Testament authors doing, leveraging Old Testament material, leveraging current circumstances to speak highly of Jesus and to get people to change their mind about who he was and what his life means to them. They will, they will manipulate stories. They will take Old Testament, and I'll prove it today. They'll take Old Testament stories that are clearly about Israel 
uh, and they'll make them about Jesus and they'll change it. And they didn't do it to deceive people or hope that nobody finds out what we've done. They knew everybody would know, hey, that's supposed to be about Israel. Yes, but we're changing. What if we're, we're taking some creative um, uh, liberties in this way to kind of shift that story to be like, what if it was also, or uh, in, uh, by extension, about Jesus? Does that change your mind about Jesus? And we think uh, this is so, this, they, they would say this, we think this is so important. We think that this Jesus thing is so important uh, that we need to take drastic measures to be able to communicate that. When sometimes when circumstances are so drastic, you take drastic measures to ma- measure up to that. This is, guys, this is what we're experiencing right now. This is why we're all doing involuntary homeschooling for the next six weeks, because drastic times call for some. Dra- if, if the if, if the message is important enough, you will shift some things around to communicate that. That's what's taking place in this. When you read the New Testament, it is important to read. They'll refer back to old things. They'll, re- they'll, they'll pull the scriptures from a context of it. And, and anytime they do that, you have to look back and be like, what was the original? What were they trying to say in, in the original? And you can't say, well, those New Testament authors, they're lying. That's not even what it was about. They would know that. They're just trying to change people's minds about it. They're so passionate that they're readers would see Jesus in a new light, that they went to great lengths to communicate this new, new belief, which is a huge jump, by the way. I totally understand that. We've grown up, listen, if you, uh, you know, even if you're not really religious and you're watching this online because it's free and, and you have nothing else to do for the next six weeks, um, even if you uh, are not religious, particularly didn't grow up in a church, church has never meant anything to you, um, there's a good chance that you're either neutral or positive towards the like public image or the brand of Jesus. It is really odd. It feels really out there to be like anti-Jesus, right? If you posted something on social media and said, wasn't Jesus the worst? You are going to get so much comments about that. There's going to be so much interactions with that. Whereas, you know, if somebody comes out and goes, well, Jesus was the best, that gets no noise. Like everybody just goes, that's fine. You're just religious. So that's just, you know, that's fine. I, I, I get it. But to be anti-something, we, we uh, hold in such high esteem, even if we're not particularly religious ourselves, it, the holy figure of Jesus. It's not weird for us to think he was divine, or at least that people think he's divine, that, to make that jump. And what we, what we fail then to understand is that that was definitely not the case as Paul is writing his New Testament stuff. He's trying to make a case for the divinity of Jesus. He's trying to take somebody who everybody would thought of as normal, average Joe, I mean, a good person, and trying to place this role of divinity on him. So he's got to be aggressive. He's got to go further. He's got to do more. He's got to leverage whatever he can to communicate the significance of this. See, we come at it from a different approach. Our baseline is that Jesus was divine. And so it's not really weird for us to get there. And we fail to kind of actually see this. So much of the New Testament is the authors using whatever means necessary to influence a seismic shift in how its readers are supposed to view Jesus. And just to prove it to you with some scripture texts, because we're going to dive into a few of these verses to kind of show you that this isn't just theory, this is playing out as it works. Here's the length that Paul went to to try and communicate this. All right, 
The Old Testament uh, is uh, 39 different books by a bunch of different authors with different sections involved in them. You've got history, you've got uh, law, you've got uh, prophets. uh, That makes a big part of it, poetry and all that kind of stuff. But at the very beginning, the very forefront of this thing, you have a section called the Pentateuch. Uh, The Penta means five, the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These would contain what the Jewish people knew as the Torah or the law of Moses, all right? That shows up at the back half of Exodus and takes place through most of Leviticus, Numbers, and then a rehashing of it in Deuteronomy. Every kid worth their salt growing up in the religious system of whatever would have memorized for sure the Torah, for sure the first five books of the Old Testament. That was just common knowledge. It would be like the SAT tests or algebra for our modern day scenario. That would be core teaching for them. They may not know all of the Psalms. They may, well, Psalms they probably would have, but there would have been some prophetic stuff that would have just been kind of like take it or leave it, whatever. But Torah and Psalms were probably super core curriculum. Everybody knew this kind of growing up. They held it in incredibly high esteem. The Torah was the thing that that, that is what mandated. And, and we know it because um, uh, this, this would be the thing, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, gets the Ten Commandments from God, comes down on the tablets. And and it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's this is the covenant stipulations for what is expected of you as the people of God. If we're going to be in this um, uh, relationship with God, uh, it for them was viewed as a contractual thing. We will do these things and you will bless us. Uh, You bless us and we will do these things. It's kind of a both and sort of piece. And if we fail to come through or if we don't adhere to the contract stipulations, there's going to be blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy chapter 28 of what you see about the penalties for not coming through. In the same way, if you bail on a contract, if you sign a contract with a company and you fail to make payments, uh, you know, they're going to cut off your electricity or you're going to cut off your cable or whatever the case may be. There's going to be some ramifications for this. This would be their law. This would be kind of all of that kind of piece altogether. And they held this in incredibly high esteem. This was the differentiating factor between what makes us Israel and what differentiates us from everybody else in the world. We have this God, our God, they called him Yahweh God, who uh, issued this thing uniquely for us. This is special. This is what makes us special. And we've already seen that the Old Testament law is ambiguous and diverse and requires interpretation for setting, which is a lot of times how this plays out in the Old Testament. What, what do we think this now means and what we do this, and, and which is exactly what we see in later historical books of the Old Testament and in the gospel teachings of Jesus as Jesus would pull back and pull these things out and said, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you this. What he's doing is taking an Old Testament piece, adjusting it for the current circumstances and saying, well, what does it require of me now? Here's what it requires of me now. Here's how I live it out now. But once we get to the other parts of the New Testament, we sense almost a mood shift, with Paul especially in this way. Paul keeps bringing up the law or the Torah like he's trying to wrap his head around what place the law now has in light of the surprising story of Jesus. Something new has taken place. I'm not exactly sure where this fits in because now we have this crucified and risen Messiah, but we also have Torah. These are contract stipulations, but then something who I believe, Paul would say, came from this God that we love and serve and whatever. And now I'm trying to work out the integration between these two things. And I think he's like, 
He's almost doing this as he's writing some of these things. Have you ever listened to somebody talk through something and it's clear they're processing it even as they're saying the words out loud? Um, Or let me say it this way. Have you watched press conferences at all this week on news channels? We're talking things out as we're processing them and as it's going along. I mean, this is just like common things for us. Paul is notoriously difficult to pin down on this matter, but here's an attempt to sum up his thinking. Um, At certain times, Paul is all for the Torah and thinks that we should definitely, there's definitely pieces about what he writes where he's like, still in place, still needs to be adhered to, and still held in very, very high esteem, and we should not ignore it, and it doesn't, it's not abolished and all of that kind of stuff. But at other times, and I would argue probably a little bit more often, this law is fine and good, but can only go so far. I mean, it can't keep anybody on the straight and narrow. The Israelites had centuries and centuries and hundreds of second chances to be able to make this work. And all we've seen from that record record is that it doesn't seem to work. Like I know it's there to kind of set us up for success, but it just feels like it's the condemning features of it are overpowering because we just keep messing this up. The law is powerless to help us because humanity is under, according to Paul in a lot of different places, humanity is under the problem of sin and death. Like we just, there's something in us that no matter how hard we try, we can't find ourselves doing this. And it's a point that goes all the way back to the origin story found in Genesis in a garden. He's like, this has been a struggle for us. Anytime rules are in place, we know we're not good enough to match up to it. We want standards to know what it means to be good. And who doesn't, right? Who doesn't go through life going, I just need to know what it takes to win. If you're in a marriage, at some point, probably you get to your your, conversation with your spouse and say, how do I know that I'm being a good, what what are the indicators? What are the, (laughs) what's the goal? What's the baseline? How do I know that I'm winning? I feel like I'm constantly losing with you. I'm not good enough for you. So what do I, can we, can we put it down? Can we get some things down on paper? And for them, that was kind of what this was. And yet now that it's down on paper, they still can't match up to it. And that's how it kept serving uh, for them. So in Romans chapter eight, verse three, Paul addresses this idea of the role of the power of the law in, in light of how, kind of how I would live my life. And, the new, and, and then integrating it with this new thing that is Jesus, that he's trying to be like, I can't ignore this. This feels like a big piece. I know we got this tradition, this history. So How do these things fit together? Here's what it says. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity. Again, I want to do it, but I can't. In order to set it right once for all. The law code, or and I put parentheses, that's me, Torah, weakened as it was always, as it always was fractured by human nature, could never have done that. Jesus did what the law never could. That's what a lot of translations, uh, NIV translation has. Jesus did what we knew and we found out through just personal experience. The law could have never done for us as badly as we wanted it. We are now free to follow a new law established by Jesus, which Paul sums up in Galatians as loving others in a spirit of humility in imitation of himself. Here's how people will know that you are my disciples and my followers and people of uh, following the Jesus way that you love one another in the same way that I have loved you, which makes sense and sounds good to us. I mean, maybe not all of us, but most of us probably watching and be like, okay, 
I, I have definitely read parts of the Old Testament, and I definitely don't match up and don't want to match up with what the expectations were from there. But when, when Jesus talks, I tend to agree with the things that he says about life and, and how I'm supposed to treat others. So I'm good, I'm good with that. I'm good with setting aside Torah and following and prioritizing Jesus above Torah. But apparently it didn't sit well with everybody because Jewish opposition, as we know by Paul's letters and writings in other places, took issue with this, with his seemingly flippant treatment of Torah. Like, you can't just throw this out, Paul. A lot of times when he's writing, you can tell he's addressing people who say, you can't just do that. It's not now just over like that. Like, we hold this incredibly high esteem. Think about, think about this whole COVID situation that we're going through right now. Here's what we, we, we know that it's bad, right? We know that we're all like sequestered in and not quite quarantined off, but it kind of feels like it, Right. And at some point, we hold out the hope that this is going to be over. But imagine the person who has to imagine the person who has to make that call, and what kind of authority that kind of person would have to have for them to be like, "All right, basketball starts back up, kids back in school." Like, it's gonna that is going to be a a long, tedious. Like, there's a ton of risk involved in that. I'm glad I that's above my pay grade, so I don't have to make that call, but that's going to be something where there's going to be, have to be a level of authority involved in that. You're not going to go, oh, Kevin at work says everything's good, so we should be fine. Kids can go back to school, right? We, should, we can all go back out. Kevin's an idiot. We don't know, right? He might be an idiot. Who knows? Who is that person? To make that call and for it to stick means that there's a high level of authority involved in that. Paul is essentially making this claim to some people to say the law was good, but now something has come better. Well, who are you to say that? After all, it is very, very clear from Old Testament scripture that Torah was held incredibly high esteem. We're going to look at a couple of Psalms. These would be the songbook. This would be the thing that the kids would memorize, the, the, the music growing up as they would travel and as they would ascend to Jerusalem and, and descend and songs of lament and songs of joy and all these. They would all know these songs, right? And here, here's uh, just a couple of examples. Psalm chapter one, uh, this is a, a real common one probably. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners uh, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is on the law of the Lord and on this law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the person whose mind is constantly on the Torah of God, who takes it and, and eats it in, in, in a way, who, who takes it and doesn't just read it, but it like consumes it and it like goes through him and it becomes a part of who he is. When you eat something, it becomes like a part of who you are, right? This is what they're saying. Like this is so incredibly blessed or lucky are those kind of people. Every, they would go on to say everything that they does prosper, uh, not so the wicked. Their lives are like chaff that the wind blows away. Verse uh, 97 of chapter 119. Oh, how I love your law, right? It is my meditation all day long. Imagine saying that about the U.S. Constitution, right? Or the RSWs of the state of Washington. Oh, God, I love those laws. Oh, I just, I, when I can't sleep at night, I just, I read through those and my mind goes just to a calming nature, when I realize like property extension rights and what all the, uh, the appeals processes and, and how I need to apply for a permit to be able to mow my lawn now. I just, I love that kind of stuff, right? This is ridiculous. But in, in their mind, they held it in such incredibly high esteem for them, they would actually say these and sing these and teach their kids, we love the law of God. We love knowing where we stand, even when we fail to match up to it. The law wasn't something they were excited to get 
over. Paul didn't introduce something that they were like ultra receptive to hear. The opposite, in fact. He's telling them something's over and it's something that they craved and loved and enjoyed, even though they knew they never measured up to it. Psalm 119, 105, your word, your law is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Now it's interesting because that one is often used in terms of scripture. Oh, we, you know, we post this on Instagram with this like, you know, this picture of footprints in the sand and, and we're kind of combining two different pictures involved in that. But we, we, we like to say that that's about scripture in general, except that it was an Old Testament Psalm and the only book that they would have had in paper format at that time would have been the Torah. They didn't have all the prophets. They didn't have the Bible. There was no New Testament when this is written. This is what they're talking about. They're talking not about the word of God in general, For them, this was the law. Your law lights my path. It shows me how to walk, and it shows me where to go. And I can't see Paul saying any of these things, and he doesn't. All the praise Jewish tradition gives to the law, Paul gives to Christ instead, who he claims to be the end of law. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 4 of Romans. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And once again, he's claiming to have an end of something. He's claiming that this is now over. And imagine the authority. Imagine the, the, the stuff. Imagine what it would take for somebody right now to be like, this whole scare is over. Don't worry, guys. Epidemic's done. Um, no matter who says it now, there's like skepticism. I don't even know what it would take to get there. That's what's happening in this. We can breeze through this, and unless we're aware of this when we read through this, we will misunderstand the significance of why Paul wrote the letters that he did to the people that he did in the way that he did it. Because he was committed to leveraging whatever it takes. You really love the law? Let me tell you something that's even better than that. His name is Jesus. He's trying to leverage anything he can to highlight and to promote a higher understanding, a higher belief, a higher love of this person who is Jesus. Peter Enns wrote a book called How the Bible Actually Works. It's been kind of one of the books that have influenced the series. And in it, he has this quote, Paul doesn't reject the law of Moses as some in Christian history of thought, but he does marginalize it. He decenters it by placing it at the center of God's plan for the world. Not our obedience to Torah law, but Christ's obedience to go through with the crucifixion to defeat sin and God's raising of Jesus from the dead to defeat death. And whether we realize it or not, this is a major shift. Paul was expecting a lot, a rethinking, a reimagining of the heart of of the tradition, which was the role of Torah. He reimagined Israel's story creatively because the circumstances demanded it from him. And we're in a position right now where the shifting circumstances are causing us to rethink how we do things. Our lives have changed dramatically in a week, and we're constantly, here's all the information, interpreting it, reimagining how things work. I've never had a march without a March Madness basketball tournament. It's always been there for me to get me through the doldrums that are Tri-Cities in March, and now it's not there. And I know that's trivial in comparison to the real risks involved right now, but the question then becomes for all of us, uh, again, of what's wise for me to do right now? What do I do in light of this? That question right there and its tangible consequences have been the driving nature of this book, and it would be remiss to ignore it, and we'd be missing out if we ignored its invitation to reimagine in our time and in our current reality. It's not just a matter of fact that they did this. It's also a matter of us and what we do with this, that we are, again, once again, I've said this multiple weeks because I think this is so critical about reading your Bible. 
this shows us the pattern. People reimagining God in their times and in the midst of their circumstances. So we should too. So we gather together on a weekly basis, sometimes from home, sometimes in the building or whatever, trying to reimagine the teachings of Jesus, not change them up, throw them out completely, but in light of what he said there and in light of how I'm called to do life now, what does it require of me now? What does love require of me now? If, if the, the, the thing that would be, like, this is the indicator, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, uh, by the way that you love one another. If, if, uh, he, if Paul would say things like, nothing else matters except grace through love, then, then what does that mean for us here and now? So yeah, I think you should read your Bible, guys. I think it's that important. I don't want to be a resource to be able to make sure that happens for you. In a Time Magazine article from 1963, Post-World War II, and in light of a fluctuating world, a world in recovery at that point for sure, Karl Barth, a German theologian, encouraged young theologians to, uh, to do this. Take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. And that kind of imagery has stuck with me forever. I think this is incredibly important because this, and as we take that and we hold our newspaper or Odds are for you, like your phone or your you know, tablet or whatever, however else you get your news, and your Twitter. Read your Bible and your Twitter at the same time. But interpret this through the lens of this. We have always been called to interpret for the times and ask ourselves, what is it wise for me to do right now? And the Bible has so much to say about that. So I want you to read your Bible, and I think that that's part of how the Bible actually works. And I want us to be a community where we take and eat, and I think this is something that we think we should be. Uh, in the forefront of our minds as we read through scripture. All right, so that will conclude our series. Typically we do uh, like communion and that just sounds like a death sentence. We're not gonna do uh, communion today. Um, We uh, are gonna plan on doing these online talks uh, for the foreseeable future. We don't know timeline wise, um, but uh, just uh, keep keep, uh, checking the emails and getting text messages from us. And and if you're watching this for the first time and you've never been a part of an Eastlake community, this is very different from what we do, but um, the teaching part is is eerily similar. Um, But uh, everything else, you're missing out on great coffee and incredible um, greeter team and, and kids teams and just uh, a, a totally different experience. So when we get back to normal, we would love to have you on a, a Sunday morning, and we typically do this at 9.30 and 11. But uh, for the next couple of weeks, we'll be in this. Uh, we are, by the way, just want you to know, um, we are committed to um, your safety above all things. Um, number two, we're committed to resourcing you as, as much as we can. Uh, and number three, we're committed to coming up with creative ways to figure out what it would look like for the church to wear love uh, in this uh, current circumstance. And it's going to look differently than what we usually do. And our board and our leadership team are currently fielding a bunch of different ideas. And you're going to see some of those be playing out in a little while. Um, you think back through, uh, I mentioned this book several times, that Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity and trying to explain why Christianity had the explosive growth that it did. And one of the reasons that he accounts for is Christians uh, running in during the Black Plague when everybody else was running out. And uh, the chastisement from the Roman emperor to his own priests and own leadership saying, the Christians are better at taking care of the more vulnerable than we are. Um, it's no surprise that they're growing at this rate because of what they've been able to do. Um, so I think that uh, this can also provide us with a, a bit of an opportunity to rethink what it means to be the church. And uh, I think circumstances um, always call people, summon people to lead, and uh, we want to be a part of that. And um, yeah. 
So I, I, want, I want you to, to know that uh, we care for you, we're here for you, and uh, we're going to continue to be a light and be a community for people who don't typically uh, like church, and uh, we appreciate you being here this morning. I'm going to read a benediction, and then this thing's going to go offline. Here we go. Lord, in our efforts to serve, help us to be true to who we are in you. Make us see and understand the gifts and talents you've given us, and give us in, uh, courage to use them for the building up of your kingdom. Amen. Grace and peace as you go. Am I done? <laughs> I am Here we go. Close